Great to be with you all this morning. My name is Rob, and I'm one of the teaching pastors here, along with Lloyd Shadrach. If you're new with us or just visiting, you probably noticed we don't hear the same teacher two weeks in a row. That's how we work around here. We believe in team ministry, and that extends to our teaching as well. So Lloyd was here last week. I'll be here this week. Next week, Lloyd will be here. We tend to, to go back and forth. Eric Hoffman, who you heard from earlier, will jump in from time to time. And We've got one of our elders, Mike Vote, who teaches as well, but we believe in team. You know, that's one of the distinctives of fellowship, and we've been walking through this book of Ecclesiastes. I guess it's been three or four months now. We started in May or so, and as Eric already referenced, it's been a heavy journey. Uh, there's a sense of this book that it's just unrelenting. It's message about the brevity of life, it's message about the vapor, the word it keeps using over and over again is vanity or meaningless or vapor. It's a breath. Life is short. Where do we find meaning? Where do we find true substance in all that we see around us? And once again, we're going to be looking at that theme this morning. This time, though, Solomon has a little bit of a different take. So if you haven't already, opened up, open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes, the uh, text that, that Luke just read to us, verses 11 through 18 of chapter 9 is where we're going to be this morning. Now, to get us into this text, let me give you a little bit of an illustration. For my ninth birthday, there was one gift that I wanted more than anything else in the world, you know, and it wasn't a, um, a super red scooter or whatever it was. For me, it was what's under this little tablecloth right here. So let me scoot this back so those of you on my left can kind of see this. Underneath this tablecloth is the very gift that I wanted more than any other gift for my ninth birthday, and it is... The Game of Life. Raise your hand if you've ever played this game. Okay, most of you in the room have played the Game of Life. Now, let me put you in, in, in my um, nine-year-old brain. I had played this game at a friend's house, and every other game I'd ever played just disappeared, you know, compared to this. Because the sense was, all right, Candyland is for kids. This is the Game of Life. All right, now I want to show you some of the pieces. I'll get to the board in just a minute, but I want to show you some of the pieces in this game. First of all, and this is enough for any uh, nine-year-old boy, it has cars, and you get to drive the cars around the track. Now that's, you know, now looking at it as a 42-year-old, I'm like, I can, are those even cars? Like, do they even look like cars? I don't know, but to me, they were cars. People, these little tiny pegs in their blue and pink, you get to get married in the game, you get to have kids, you know, I wasn't all into that part, but you get to put them in the car, you know, and stuff them in the car and then drive the car around the track, which is pretty cool. The best part of all, though, was what I'm about to hold in my hands, the stack of money. Now, you can't see it from this distance, but let me just tell you, the smallest denomination is $10,000, and it goes up to the five hundred thousand dollar bill all right so again i'm thinking man this is this is life like this is real life right it has these uh cards uh that that have all kinds of positive and negative things that can happen to you uh, along the game of life and you know from my perspective as a nine-year-old they're, they're pretty realistic so this one says uh savannah safari you know collect fifty thousand dollars from the bank so you go on a Savannah Safari and you get $50,000 from the bank. I thought that was pretty cool. Hiking the Great Wall of China. Throw your pet a birthday party. Okay. Collect $20,000 from each player as a present. How cool is that, right? So I'm thinking this is just, uh, this is life at its finest. And so the best part of all, perhaps maybe even better than the cars, was the last thing I'm going to show you from the box. And that is the spinner. 
Okay, do y'all remember the spinner? Now, even today, to this day, I have to admit there's something satisfying about giving this thing a little bit of a spin. And uh, what you have on the spinner is you've got these bright colors and you've got these numbers. And depending on what number you spin around, that's how you go around the board. And then you collect money or you uh, run into, you know, a little trouble like, you know, oh no, a little trouble. You skinned your knee in the playground. You have to go to the doctor and you know, pay, pay some money. So here's the board that I wanted to show you that you travel around for those of you that haven't played. Now, my girls have never played the real game, but I have to admit they have played the screen version, so they know what this is all about a little bit. But uh, yeah, so you've got colleges and buildings and you've got all kinds of things. Now, the part that I wanted to point out, and I'm not finding it right here immediately, it's a little bit hard to find, but at the end of the road, you kind of go to two options. There's no death. Okay, there's no death in the game of life. Uh, here it is. You go to retirement, and everybody goes to retirement, okay? Whether you want to or not, you go to retirement. But once you get there, your options are either the uh, countryside acres or the millionaire mansion, all right? So there's no bankruptcy. By the way, I did some research. There used to be when the game came out in the 60s, and then somewhere along the way, they took out the bankruptcy, and now it's just happy endings for everybody. Isn't that interesting? So, you know, the worst off you're going to get is the countryside acres. Ooh, you know, scary. So from a nine-year-old perspective, this was life. This was life to me. I thought this was all that it was about, and, and, and I loved playing life, and I couldn't wait to, to get, you know, $10,000 bills every, t every few months and uh, come around and collect cars and, and, um, uh, and, and a wife and kids and spin the spinner and go to college and make all these choices. And this is how I saw the game of life. Now you get a little bit older and you realize, oh, the, the spinner in the real game of life is a lot more wicked. <laughs> okay, it's not just all roses. Uh, there's some things that happen in the game of life, as Eric was just alluding to, that are very difficult. And so if we've been going through this series on Ecclesiastes, the subtitle, if you've, if you've noticed and paid attention over here to uh, your right, is Unmasking the Good Life. If this is your perspective of life, you're going to learn pretty quickly when real life hits, uh-uh, it doesn't work that way. It's not all cartoony. You know, it's not all bright rainbows and, and, and pets and all these kinds of things. We've been unmasking the good life. Now, the tragedy of this, and this is where I want to kind of launch from, from my illustration into the text this morning. The tragedy is, unfortunately, even though we all know that the real game of life doesn't operate like the board game, we still play the real game the same way. We still play as if the objective is the same. Listen to the objective uh, from the instruction manual here. Uh, hit the road for a roller coaster life of adventure, family, unexpected surprises, and pets. I think they added the pets later. I don't think I remember actually that in the version that I played. The player with the most money at the end of the game wins. That's how we live the real game of life. The player with the most money at the end, or the most, you know, if you fill in the blank, the most comfort, um, the, the, the best support of family around you, um, the, the best plot of acreage in Leaper's Fork, um, the, the song that, that did it for your career. You know, you fill in the blank. The player with the most at the end of the game wins. And so this is our problem. We keep playing the real game of life just like we do the Milton Bradley version. Now, what Lloyd reminded us last week, if you were here, it was one of those messages that just made me grateful that God created Lloyd Shadrach. I know that sounds silly, but Lloyd has this remarkable way of bringing a text to life in these real world examples. And so if you were here last week, there was a 
tombstone, there was a grave plot. And he illustrated this idea that if you are a believer in Jesus, real life starts on the other side of the grave. There's time you're going to walk over and real life's going to begin over here. And so what can't you take with you? Well, you can't take your cars, can't take your pets, can't take your money, can't take your houses, can't take any of the stuff in the box. In fact, one of my favorite quotes from author John Ortberg is, when the game is over, all the pieces go back in the box. And that's what happens. So our text this morning is going to answer the question, how do you play the real game of life? Like, what's the secret? Since it's not a bed of roses, how are we to play? And Solomon has an answer for us in this text. In fact, there's one thing in this text he's going to say, if you miss everything else in your turn around the game, your trip around the game board, don't miss this. Don't miss this idea. Don't miss this strategy. There is one thing that is the best thing under the sun. And that's where the text is going to take us. So we're going to jump in and and I'm going to read a a verse, talk about a verse, read another verse, talk about a verse. If you're new to fellowship, that's how we teach the Bible, is we dig in to the meaning of the text. We go as deep as we need to, to kind of uh, show this is what the, the human author inspired by the Holy Spirit meant to the original audience. And then we apply it to our lives. And we'll do that toward the end of the message. It's called expository teaching. And that's what we do here. So let's look at verse 11. Luke read it for us. We're going to walk back through it and explain it. Verse 11, I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors and neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to men of ability for time and chance overtake them all. Here's what Solomon is saying. The real game of life doesn't operate the way that you think it should. It's not always the strong ones that win the battle. It's not always the smart ones that ace the test. It's not always the discerning ones that make the right decisions. He's sort of saying, look, there's a lot more chance and bad things that happen in the real life than in the other life. So be careful as you go around the board. Now, his point is that the game doesn't always go the way that it should. And he outlines five things that seem like from a human perspective, they should be a successful strategy. Be strong, be smart, be discerning, etc. And he's saying that don't always work. Why? He gives the answer in, in the back half of the verse, because of time and chance. Time and chance. It's sort of like, all right, th- there's some nasty spaces on that spinner. And if you spend enough time spinning that thing, you're going to hit some of them. You know, you're going to hit a storm in life. You're going to hit an illness. You're going to hit a death. You're going to hit, you're going to just, something's going to come for you. Now, theologically, we got to wrestle with this idea of chance. Because here is a man who was intimate with Yahweh, had conversations with God, at least throughout his life. And, you know, Solomon went through a huge period of time where he was kind of in rebellion. And we don't know exactly when these thoughts would have been spoken or recorded by him that were compiled into this book. But we have to acknowledge that for sure the Holy Spirit is inspiring this text through the human author of Solomon and his wisdom here. So what does he mean by chance? We know theologically there's no chance, technically speaking, God is sovereign over all. I think what Solomon is representing is from the perspective of little bitty human beings whose brains are so small compared to God that we might as well be tiny little carpenter ants. From our perspective, it sure seems like things just happen 
by chance. It sure seems like that. Why do some people go to the doctor and get a good test report and others don't? It doesn't seem to be tied to their righteousness. It doesn't seem to be tied to fairness. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Life's not fair. And so from Solomon's perspective, it all seems like chance. I think he's kind of putting on the hat of a secularist here when he's saying this. And we all have to acknowledge it does feel like that sometimes. It does feel like time and chance are out to get me occasionally. Yet there's something higher really going on and we'll get to that toward the end of the message let's move on for now to verse 12 moreover man does not know his time same theme like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare so the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them here's what he's saying there are good times and there are bad times and you don't know your time you may think you're in a good time and this afternoon at say around 4 p.m something's going to happen something could happen that suddenly you realize now i'm in an evil time and you have no control over it he's comparing us to fish swimming along everything's fine water's calm then all of a sudden what's this i've hit up against I don't recognize this feeling. And then we start getting pulled up by this net up out of the water. And before long, you can't even breathe anymore. And you start squirming around trying to get out of this net. And you're trapped. You're caught in a net. Now, we don't like to be compared to fish. We don't like to be compared to birds that are ensnared. And the reason is we all have this desire to sort of be in control to, to be in charge of our own lives. We kind of have this idea, and it's thick in our culture, that we're the masters of our own destiny. And some of you have built your entire lives with a lot of success, I might say, to figuring that you're, you're smart enough, or, or you have a good enough education, or a good enough background, or you're talented enough, or you just by sheer hard work, you can manage your way out of any snare out of any net. And what Solomon is saying is, you don't know your time. You're more like a fish than you think you are. You're, you're more sort of, uh, you're going to succumb at some point in time to one of the evils of life. And if you haven't yet, there's one that's for sure coming for you, which he keeps reminding us of, and that's death. And I think the context of verse 12 is probably best seen in light of death. At some point in time, you're going to keel over, and not, it's not going to be a time that you choose. So what do these two verses do for us so far? Verse 11, verse 12. I mean, besides kind of making us a little bit depressed, what do they do for us? They remind us we are not in charge. They remind us that no matter how good you think you are at playing the game of life, you don't have all the answers. They instill in us, I'd say it this way, a deeper sense of humility. And that's the starting point that Solomon's going to use to then give us what he believes is the secret of living the real game of life. So you begin with a posture of humility. All right, that's the starting place in these two verses. And then we're going to move on from there and we're going to see a short parable, the story of this little city that was attacked by a great army. And this parable is going to point us to the most valuable thing under the sun. Let's take a look, verse 13. Also this I came to see as wisdom under the sun and it impressed me. Now don't, don't gloss over that verse too quickly because for Solomon to be impressed by anything at this point is a big deal. Everything he said is vanity. Remember? He talks about wealth. Oh, it's vapor. It's, it's vanity. It's meaningless. He talks about uh, relationships and, you know, pleasure and, and every, everything. You know, what, go after whatever your heart desires. It's vanity at the end of the day. Talks about work. 
vanity, success, vanity, building projects, you know, all this stuff. Vanity, vanity, vanity. He comes to this and says, it impressed me. What impressed you, Solomon? Let's find out. It's this little story that's going to illustrate his point. Verse 14, there was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, constructed large siege works against it. When you're reading the Bible, notice contrasts. There's contrasts all throughout this text, and you want to pay attention to them when you're kind of, it's a good Bible study method. In, in here, let's just take a look at the contrast. Small city, few men, contrasted with great king, large siege works. You see the contrast in that? Now, when you hear siege works, I don't love that English translation because here's why. It makes our brain think of like medieval catapults and things like this. That wouldn't have been around uh, 1000 BC. Now, if you dig into the Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word for nets. It's the same word that was used earlier about the fish. He's just come into a net. So exact same Hebrew word. So what's a net over a city? Probably what's going on in this context, because this fits historically how they would, they would do uh, warfare, is an army would come and surround a city. And what it would do, it, it would encircle it and cut off all the resources. So any, any food coming in or coming out was going to be completely cut off. Any water sources would be completely cut off. That's why it's so critical to have a fresh water source inside your city walls or figure out a way to get it. So you go to Israel today, you'll find all kinds of amazing, ingenious things from thousands of years ago where they dug tunnels underneath to try to get fresh water into the city for this very reason. So an enemy couldn't come and put a net around their city. So they would literally starve the inhabitants of the city into the place of submission. So that's what's happening here. Now, you know that this little city is vulnerable because it's small. He's already told us that. There's very few men. It's not going to be able to fight its way. Literally starving to death. And so you know there's, there's an ending to this story that's coming. Like th this is, this is the, a bad turn of the spinner for the inhabitants of this city. All right? But look at the next, very next word in verse 15. There's another word of contrast. So something unexpected is going to happen. The story's not going to end the way it, you think it should end. There was found in it, in the city, a poor wise man. A, singular, poor, no financial resources. Single man, probably overlooked. In fact, we know he's overlooked in his city. He's going to tell us that in just a minute. Nobody's paying attention to him because in that day, and in our day too, those with the wealth, those with the resources are the ones that are listened to. But this one single poor wise man is going to save the city. But the key is, he's not just poor, he's wise. And he delivered the city. How did he deliver it? By his strength? By his wealth? By his resources? No, by his wisdom. And then one final contrast in this verse, yet. No one remembered the poor man. So it's like, this poor guy, you know, he's overlooked to begin with. He saves the city. After he saves the city, people forget about him just as quickly as they did before. Yet no one remembered this poor man. Now, this was amazing that one little poor man could defeat the vast army of a powerful king. Wisdom was the answer. This one man had something that neither his own rulers and government in his city had, apparently, nor did the attacking powerful king and all of his generals, none of them had more wisdom than this one man. And that's what amazed Solomon. How powerful the wisdom in a single individual can be. 
The moral of the story is in the verses that follow. And so I'm going to read to you 16, 17, and 18 as a block, because they go together as a block. And I want you, if you had a pen or, or pencil handy, I want you to underline or circle the word better, because that's the key word in these verses. And it's the key word of our text, okay? Better. Listen to how Solomon uses that word, verse 16. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war. But, another contrast, one sinner destroys much good. Wisdom's better than strength. Quiet whispers of wisdom better than loud shouting of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons. Spears, arrows, swords, massive boulder-throwing things, if they even had those back then. Wisdom's better than all of these things. He's saying not everything under the sun is equal. One thing is better. It's better. Now, Solomon's secret strategy to success in the real game of life is not the most money. It's not being the strongest one who could beat up anybody that disagrees with you. It's not being the most talented. It's not being uh, the, the kind of person that can just, through your humor and cleverness, you know, make everybody like you. It's the one who's wise. Wisdom is the secret. And when you hear that in our context, there's probably some of you in the room, maybe all of us in the room, that have a little bit of a disappointment. It's like, I thought I was going to hear the secret of life, and you're just telling me it's wisdom. We tend to overlook wisdom, just like the people in the story do. This is why Solomon keeps coming back to this contrast. One wise man saved the whole city, yet he was overlooked. Wisdom is better than this, better than that yet it's despised. Wisdom is this great thing. So don't miss it because you probably have been. You have probably have been overlooking it because that's human nature. Now to really understand why wisdom is such a big deal to Solomon and to really understand you know, how much better wisdom is than what we think it is, you have to think about Solomon's perspective on wisdom and contrast it with our own. So when we think of wisdom today, uh, we think of owls, Okay, we think of um, maybe like uh, gentle, you know, that, that uh, everybody has like a, a grandparent or an uncle or, you know, someone that you kind of just like, you think of them kind of like, oh yeah, he's, he's, he's wise, you know, I don't really love to hang out with him or whatever, like he's not a lot of fun, but he's wise, you know, and whatever. We kind of just put wisdom in this on the shelf over here, saying, oh, and maybe sometimes we, we make it quasi-spiritual, you know, but there's nothing about owls and, you know, older people on the shelf that, that draws us in. It's just like, man, give me some of that. I'm going to lay down my life in exchange for wisdom. Like, we don't have that perspective. But that was Solomon's perspective. Let me tell you a story from the key moment in Solomon's life. Um, uh, this was the moment in time that shaped his entire trajectory. He was a young king, you know, probably in his late teens, early 20s. His father, David, had died, and now the entire kingdom was in his hand. And God did something remarkable, very unusual in the scripture. God came to Solomon in a dream, and God said, Solomon, I'm going to give you anything you want. 
Like literally, he, he didn't put any parameters around. He didn't say, I'll give you anything you want as long as it's, you know, a good thing or as, as long as it's not going to hurt anybody. He says, I'll give you anything you, you want as you start this journey as the king of Israel, you know, in, in your journey of life. What do you want? What do you want? Solomon chose wisdom. And uh, for those of you that know that story, you know how, how God responded to that. Let me read it to you. This is from 1 Kings chapter 3. God said to him, because you've asked this thing, and they've listened to this list, have not asked for yourself a long life. So Solomon could, God could have said, Solomon, I'm going to make you wise, but you're only going to live till you're 30. Okay, Solomon's willing to say, I'll take wisdom over a long life. All right, here's number two. You've not asked for riches for yourself. And Solomon, you know, this is kind of like the, the genie, you know, but Solomon only got one wish instead of three. But, you know, he, he didn't ask, make me a billionaire. Make me the wealthiest person that ever lived. He could have asked for that. God says, because you did not ask for that. Here's the third one. Nor have you asked for the life of your enemies. Now, that sounds rather spiteful, but think of it this way. If you're a ruler of a vulnerable nation in that day and time, military strength is what was going to preserve your life and the life of your people. All right, and God says you didn't ask for the, the lives of your enemies because you didn't ask for any of those things, but I've asked instead for discernment to understand justice. He's describing wisdom here. Behold, I've done according to your words. Behold, I've given you a wise and discerning heart so that there's been no one like you before, nor shall one like you arise Verse 13, uh, 1 Kings 3, I've also given you what you've not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all of your days. Now, here's where it gets interesting. I'm going to go back to my illustration in a second here. I used to think that, that it's just like God's like, I'm so proud of you, Solomon, that I'm going to give you a bonus. You didn't ask for riches and honor, but I'm going to throw it in. You know, it's like, you won the lottery. Here's what I think is actually probably more, more likely going on. You, you, you got this box. Inside the box are all kinds of things that Solomon could have asked for, okay? This is, this is life, right? And, and God says, all right, Solomon, I'm going to give you whatever you want. So look around the box and tell me, you know, you want uh, chariots? You can have as many chariots as you want. You want, um, you know, loyal followers that are always going to follow you. You want money. You know, Solomon had that choice. All the money, $500,000 bills all around. How about all these things that are in here? There's vacations. There's houses. The millionaire's mansion is in here. All these kinds of things. Solomon looked around all the pieces of the game. He said, no, no, no. I don't think I want any of those. You know what I want, God? Just give me this. Give me the instruction manual for life. That's what wisdom is. You see, in here it teaches you strategy. In here it teaches you how to win. And so Solomon's saying, you know what I want more than anything else? You know what I need more than anything else? Is I need to know how to live my life. And in the context of Solomon's request, it's I need to know how to lead this people that you've given to me. Will you teach me? May I have wisdom to know the right way to live, the right way to, to strategize as, as I lead the people and we're going to go around this board together throughout my rule. He wants to know wisdom. What a wise thing to ask for. And so what I think God is saying is you've unlocked the secret because the secret to the game is wisdom. No one ever reads the instructions before you play. Isn't that a shame, God is saying. In fact, you might say it this way. Solomon could have had the golden egg and instead he chose the goose. 
You follow that analogy? And so God is saying, it's like, because you chose that, you're going to get this other stuff too. Now, not that God didn't supernaturally, I believe, give him wealth and all these other things as well, but I think this illustrates the point for us. Wisdom unlocks all this stuff. Now, unfortunately, Solomon used that wisdom to sometimes some very evil paths, right? He sort of, he sort of twisted and manipulated uh, throughout the course of his life, which is tragic. So there's a contrast even between Solomon and his father David, who wholeheartedly followed God. He had his own sin, but, but you know, God says, hey, there's a man after my own heart, David. Solomon was in a different camp, but he had all the wisdom. He had it all. Now I want to connect back to our text. Here Solomon is, probably late in his life, reflecting on yet another example of the power of wisdom. And he would have seen wisdom, 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 and how powerful it was to, to strategize around the game of life, the real game of life, all throughout his years. And he comes to, to this text. He says, wisdom is better than strength. I've learned that. Here's a little illustration. Wisdom's better than political power. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. In other words, he's saying it's the greatest competitive advantage one can have in the game of life. Wisdom is the best thing under the sun. Now, here's the big idea of our text. Okay, once we name the big idea of our text, we can then start to apply it. Here's the big idea. Although often overlooked, wisdom is the best thing under the sun. Now, some of you are already thinking, under the sun. Yeah, see what he did there. You know, putting a little parameter on it. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. But here's the big idea of this text. Although often overlooked, wisdom is the best thing under the sun. Why is it the best thing under the sun? Because it can literally save you. It can literally preserve your life. This is an example where it saved the life not just of one man, but of a whole city. You see, wisdom can prolong your life. It can, it can maximize the enjoyment of your life. This is why Solomon commended it. And so some of you are thinking, that doesn't sound spiritual enough. I thought wisdom was a spiritual thing. You're making it just sound like secular, like, you know, avoid the snares and traps of the fish and the birds and live longer and have more success if you're wise. I think primarily that was Solomon's perspective in this text anyway. Remember, he's kind of wearing a secularist hat. That's his perspective on wisdom. That's why he's commending it in this passage. Now we're going to get to what else, what's not under the sun in a little bit. So hold with me. Those of you that are wanting to go there right now, just wait with me. I want to first give a few tips for how we can gain more wisdom. Because if you get the main idea of this text, wisdom really is the best thing under the sun. I hope you're thinking, I wish I had a little bit more. I need a little bit more as I'm going around this board God, would you give me wisdom like you gave Solomon wisdom? I hope your brain is going there now because that's the good and proper way to respond to the text here that God has showed us. So here are a few tips for gaining wisdom really derived from our passage this morning, All right, either directly or indirectly. Let's talk about the first one. Uh, tip number one, ask God. Uh, Solomon's whole life story could be summed up the positive parts of it anyway, by saying, ask God for wisdom. That was the key moment in Solomon's life. And, and he did give the right answer. You know, what have you asked God for? Well, um, health, okay. God, I want to be healed of this. Nothing wrong with that at all. Um, God, success in my business or success in my ministry, um, help in my relationships, you know, all these things we ask God for, all, all good things. But when was the last time you just said, God, can I have this? Can I have wisdom? 
That's a good request. Now, Solomon, if you dig down in reading uh, Proverbs, particularly, what does he believe about wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Solomon says. Proverbs 9.10, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So the only place you can go for wisdom is to ask the one who is, the one who gives. Listen to James 1.5, jumping down to the New Testament. If any of you lacks wisdom, and I hope we all say, I lack wisdom, you know, <laughs> I do, I need more wisdom. I hope everybody would say that. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. There it is, as plain as day. Listen to the back half of this verse. Who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. I pray this verse all the time. I do. It may be my most prayed verse in the entire Bible because I love the way it's just like, I, God's not going to judge us when we ask for wisdom. He's not going to say, well, I would have given it to you if you, you don't, didn't have any devotions this week. You know, I would have given it to you, but that sin area of your life, you know, you haven't overcome that yet. No, without finding fault, he gives to all generously. He will do it. You can claim that promise based on James 1, 5 and boldly ask God for wisdom. That has to be number one. Ask God if you want more wisdom. Persistently ask him. Number two, Read this book. Read this book. Now, where am I getting that from? Again, think about Solomon. Think about his life. Here's what he wrote in Proverbs 2, verse 6. Same man writing this. Proverbs 2, verse 6. The Lord gives wisdom. We already know that. Listen to this next phrase. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Okay, here's what we believe about this book. These are the very words of God. Inspired by the Holy Spirit through the individual authors of the text. From the mouth of God comes wisdom and understanding. Here it is. Here it is. Now there's a lot of books you can go, Barnes and Noble, and you can get all kinds of self-help books. And what's going on, and I'm not knocking on all those books, but what's going on most of, the, most of the time is, you know, men and women that are like, you know, eight spaces into the game of life that are like, oh, I'm winning. I think I've got something here. Let me write down some instructions for everybody else. How about going to the source of the wisdom? How about reading this book? How about getting to know this book? in such a way that you'll be able to evaluate all the other so-called wisdom of the world. Do you see? Not all that stuff in Barnes and Noble is useless, not at all. Some of it's valuable, but, but how about being able to know this book intimately? I don't, I don't care how much you've read it, how much you've studied it, there's more wisdom here for you. There's more. Where else will you go to understand how life works than the very words of the one who created life? Number one, ask God. Number two, go to this book. Number three, spend time with wise people. Sounds really obvious, but the people in Ecclesiastes chapter nine did not do it. They found this wise man, and instead of promoting him to be the ruler, they overlooked him as soon as he saved their skin. They went back to their lives. They did not spend time with wise people. We do the same thing. Remember, we take wisdom, you know, older people that aren't that valuable anymore, but we put them on the shelf. Don't put older people on the shelf. How silly is that for us? Do you know what they have to offer? They've been around the board. Like they're 
12 spaces ahead of you. They're going to say, listen, you're going to come to a fork. Don't go that way. I went that way, and I know what it's all about, but we don't listen. So practically speaking, this is just as, you know, practical as I can possibly get it. Spend time with wise people. Most of them are going to be older than you. Our culture has an over-obsession with youthfulness. Okay, we put youthful people on the cover of magazines. Yeah, we put beautiful genetic mutant people on the cover of magazines. All right, we, we need to think differently. We need to shift. We can learn from some other cultures in this area as well. Spend intentional time with older people, asking them good questions. If you want wisdom, there's a great tip for you. And then the last one is don't waste the life lessons right in front of you. Solomon uh, saw this story like he said you know I saw something so somehow I, I don't know what his role was in the context of this story it might have been a neighboring kingdom you know and you know but but he experienced it in his own life I think this is actually something that really happened that he's reflecting on so the moral of the story is take time to catalog and reflect on the major life lessons of your life Solomon reflected and he wrote it down or he told it to people who wrote it down don't waste the life lessons right in front of you. You've learned some things as you look backward on your trip around the board. Have you not? Have you ever written them down? Have you ever reflected on them? This is hard for us because we don't live in a reflective environment. We don't live in a reflective society anymore. We live in a reactionary environment. We're, we're so filled with media, bombarded with media, 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 we're just reacting to things rather than actually taking time to reflect. I want to show you something I started Oh, 15 years ago. I've, I've never shown this before. It's, it's kind of a private thing, but I thought, you know what, this could be helpful to some people or give you an idea. I have a file on my computer I started in 2003, and it's called Rob's Life Lessons. And what, what I've done is at the end of every year, I just do a little reflecting. What did God teach me this year? What are the major lessons from the last 12 months? And I just write them down. And I'm so glad I did because I can go back and read this 15 years ago. And I forgot this stuff until I read it. I'm like, oh yeah, God taught me that lesson through that experience, through that event. And 2003, 2004, I look back at major times of my life. You know, my daughter's being born during this time. God is teaching me wisdom in real time as I need to know it. I took the time to, to just reflect on it a little bit. That's not to brag, that's just to sort of give you an example of an idea. Have you thought about reflecting on the wisdom of your own life? Have you thought about how you're gonna pass this down someday? Have you thought about taking time not to waste the lessons right in front of you? Now, to do justice to this text, we gotta go one more place, all right? We have to acknowledge that as great as wisdom is, it still has its limitations. It's still the best thing under the sun, but there's a lot more to life than what's under the sun. We also know, even in this own, or their own context of Solomon, that even a wise person, chance and time are still going to have their say. That wise man in the city that saved the city, he's not around anymore thousands of years later. He died. You know, who knows? It might have been the very next year. He might have been walking along and some rock fell from somewhere. I don't know. From, that's kind of a weird story. But something killed the guy is my point. So here's the idea. If only wisdom could preserve our lives eternally but it can't not the kind of wisdom that Solomon is talking about in this story but you know what can you know who can the one who is wisdom with flesh the one who is wisdom personified 
In John chapter 1, John was writing about his friend Jesus Christ, and he said, you know, there was a point in time where God took on flesh, and he says it this way, the Word became flesh. From the mouth of God, wisdom and understanding, the Word of God took on flesh. Isn't that fascinating? All the wisdom from the mouth of God embodied in a human being. The human being came to run around the board of life, making the hard but wise and right choices and lay down his life and die so that you all can live in this great exchange that we call the gospel. So here's how we're going to close our service. I'm going to go ahead and invite the band to come up on the stage and invite the ushers to start passing out the elements. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table because every text in Scripture will ultimately point us to Jesus. And Jesus is wisdom personified. So if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've made the decision to trust Jesus for your salvation this morning, and I know that's not everybody in the room, but if that describes you, I want you to take a little cracker and take a little cup and just hold on to it. Don't, don't eat or drink yet, just hold on to it. All right, they'll be passing around. Now, let me say a couple things about this and then I'm gonna let the, the band um, kind of sing a song over us as we're sitting with the cup and the bread. It turns out, men and women, there is something even better than wisdom. Solomon asked for wisdom because he knew it was his best way to navigate the game of life. Fast forward a thousand years, Jesus would say, I am the way. It's one thing to have some wisdom, to make some good choices, and by the way, we should still pursue wisdom, absolutely. It's another thing to latch on to the one who is wisdom. It's another thing to say, okay, I'm going to have as much wisdom as I can, but I still know that time and chance are going to overtake it all. There is one I can cling on to who is going to guarantee me of life that never ends. And there is only one, and he is Jesus. So on that last meal with his disciples, he took the bread, he took the cup, he said, this is my body, eat it. What a strange thing to say, eat me. He said, this is my blood, drink it. What, what a weird, strange thing to say, eat my body, drink my blood. Here, here's, here's what he was saying is, I am for you, for you to hold, for you to grab onto, for you to, hate to say this word, consume in a way so that your life is transformed by my life. This is the invitation on the table. And for some of you this morning, it may be the very first time that you have taken the bread and taken the cup. If you believe in Jesus Christ as the one and only source of life that you're willing to grab onto for hope, then this is your morning this morning. So let's let the band play over us as we reflect, and then I'll come up and we'll eat and drink together.